Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. There are certain songs um, that are like walk-up songs for a preacher, you know. I mean, we're, we're all singing, like, give us ears to hear, your words are life. I'm back in the back, like I'm like a WWE wrestler, like about to go, and like fireworks are going to go off. It's like, here's the word, I'm holding it. It's beautiful. All right, sorry. Loved it. Loved it. Mark chapter 12 is where we are this morning. As you're turning there, let me remind you of where we are in the story thus far of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has made it to Jerusalem, and that's a big deal because he's been saying for the last uh, five chapters that he's heading to Jerusalem, but he's heading to Jerusalem for a reason. He's heading for a purpose. He's heading to be rejected and be crucified for the sins of people that they might be forgiven of the sins they are guilty of, and he's going to raise again on the third day. And Jesus has made his way to Jerusalem over the last five chapters. The place where he goes when he gets into Jerusalem, though, is the temple. On his first full day in Jerusalem, he enters into the temple, and what he sees in the temple enrages him. The temple was God's design. The fact that it was in Jerusalem for the people's worship was God's plan. It was was God's plan for his glory among all the nations. The temple was the place where people could draw near to God in prayer. It was the place of worship, the place where the nations could come and they could see the magnificence of this 35-acre complex built to the glory of this Jewish God, and they could find that this is where the one true God dwells and is worshipped. And when Jesus enters this place, in Mark chapter 11, he finds a very different scene than people drawing near to God. He finds religious people worshipping themselves in the name of God. In the place built for drawing near to God, the nations were being exploited rather than drawn to the one true God. And God's name is being defiled. The religious leaders are not shepherding the people, but rather they're getting rich off of the people by a corrupt money exchange system serving only the purpose of enriching the religious leaders. God's temple was home of the hypocrites. And it was all being done in the name of the one true God. And Jesus was angry. We saw him flip tables. We saw him drive people out. We saw him exclaim in the middle of the temple, the place where all the power of Judaism dwelled, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus by no means enters Jerusalem quietly trying to avoid the death he predicted. In fact, I I can't help but wonder if when Jesus opened his mouth and he starts flipping tables and stuff, that his disciples 
if they're anything like they've been so far in the Gospel of Mark, you can see Peter like chasing around, like putting tables back. <laughs> you know, like, no, 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 Jesus, this is, this is bad. This is not good for, for what we want to happen. This, you're signing a death sentence to yourself. And so what follows after Jesus has uh, made a commotion, what follows in the story and, and where we're at now in the story of the Gospel of Mark is a series of seven confrontations between Jesus and the religious groups that are in the temple. So in chapter 11, verses 27 through 33, they challenge Jesus' authority. They ask him, by what authority do you do these things? Last week, Drew showed us in chapter 12, verse 13, that two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, come together to try to trick Jesus with a question. Should we give taxes to Caesar or not? Pretty, pretty controversial question that they're trying to trap Jesus into an answer that will get Jesus in trouble. And Jesus handles the question masterfully, and now that the leaders have to go back to the drawing board. This morning, we find another attempt to trap Jesus from a different group within the temple, but this time it's the Sadducees. Now, in contrast to other groups, the Sadducees were known for rejecting particular doctrines as well as whole portions of Scripture. So these guys only viewed the first five books of the Old Testament as, a, as authoritative. They rejected the prophets, which was convenient because the prophets are what called out all of the sins that they were guilty of, Right? So they reject all those guys. We study only the first five books. Those are the ones that are authoritative. They rejected the concept of eternal life. They taught that the soul died with the body, uh, that all of life is just a matter of doing good and doing evil and reaping the benefits in this world. They rejected the sovereignty of God, that God was intimately involved in history and moving and acting. They rejected supernatural things. They didn't believe in angels. I mean, these are the Christian liberals of the first century. As the old children church song goes, the Sadducees were sad, you see. They had, no, y'all don't know that children's song, obviously. The Pharisees were not fair, you see. But anyways, all right. You had to be in children's ministry in the 90s, I guess. Um, they, they were sad, you see, because these are religious folk that have no real hope at all. They live their life with no promise of eternal life or resurrection at the end of time. And all this stood in contrast with another group in the temple uh, called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees had their own set of problems, but uh, they did believe in life after death. They believed in eternal life. They believed in a future resurrection. They believed in God's sovereignty. They believed in the inspiration of the whole Old Testament, though they didn't obey uh, uh, some of it, though they said they did. The Pharisees simply put an overemphasis on good works and bolstered their own pride. So there's a great debate between these two different groups within the temple. But the thing that united the Sadducees and the Pharisees was their hatred for Jesus. Jesus contradicted both their worldview and, and more specifically, their way of life. The system that they had built to get rich off of the people, Jesus had to go because he confronted what they loved most. So let's read verses 18 through 27 on this confrontation from the Sadducees, and let's pause and pray for God to give us understanding. Uh, beginning in, in verse 18. <clears throat> 
And Sadducees came to him, who say that there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and, and raise, up, uh, raise up offering for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, uh, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Whew, real easy answer there, Jesus. For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. Father, protect us. Protect us from reading scriptures like the Sadducees. Help us to see the meaning that you placed in written words and preserved for us for these thousands of years to know the one true God. Speak now by your grace, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. The Sadducees think they have it figured out. They're going to ask Jesus a question that they think will make Jesus look foolish and just kind of as an extra bonus, some gravy on top, it'll also make the Pharisee group look foolish as well. They're going to ask a question that's going to make the concept of eternal life foolish, the concept of resurrection foolish. Either Jesus will reject future resurrection altogether, and the Pharisees will hate him even more, or he'll be stumped by the question, and both Jesus and the Pharisees will be embarrassed, and they'll both go on feuding with one another. Either way, the Sadducees think the question puts them up on top, and both the Pharisees and Jesus will look foolish. The question is a simple one. The goal is not really to know anything about marriage here. They're, they're not concerned about knowing anything about marriage. The question's a simple one, but the Sadducees take it to an extreme to try to drive home their point. They don't believe in life after death, but if there were life after death, what about people who get married multiple times in this life? Whose spouse will they be in the next life? The question isn't supposed to be answerable. The Sadducees are trying to say, through the question, that life after death is a ridiculous concept. They're saying, this is, this is crazy, you know? Uh, if people are, get married to multiple people, you know, that you get widowed, you died to somebody else, when everybody's resurrected, are they going to have to fight for her? Or fight to not have her for eternity? <laughs> What's going to happen? What's going to happen here, right? The question is just meant to make their point that there is no resurrection. It's crazy. What say you, Jesus? Do something with this. 
Woman is widowed seven times, Mary seven times. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection when they all rise again on the last day? And here's at least the beginning of Jesus' answer, verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So Jesus is pretty clear about his answer from the beginning. You're wrong. Something that um, I think we have a hard time saying in our culture. I don't think we have to say it in a mean way, uh, an unloving way. But I think that to be like Jesus, we do have to say to other people, you are wrong in this matter. It's not even in the notes, just kind of a side commercial there. It's not unloving to tell someone that they're wrong. It is unloving to not tell them and then go to hell forever, though you had the truth. But before providing an argument for how they're wrong, before getting into a logical debate for how the scriptures actually teach future resurrection, Jesus addresses the heart of the issue first. He addresses why they've missed the scriptures in the first place. So before we even get into debate, let me just explain what it is that makes you wrong. Like why it is that you're wrong, though you look at the Bible all the time and read it every day. You neither know the scripture nor the power of God. Why don't they have hope of eternal life? Why don't they believe in future resurrection? Why are they refusing the Messiah who's standing right in front of them? It's not that they've never read the scriptures. It's not that they've never spoke of God. It's not that they've never done religious things. They were very serious about religious things. They were very serious about particular passages and particular books of the Bible. But despite all of their reading, despite all of their religion, the reading yielded no fruit, and the religion, though about God in theory, had nothing to do with God in reality. Remember that each of these confrontations with Jesus really helps us to see two realities. One, we get to hear more of Jesus' teaching, learn what he's like, learn what his plans are. But as we see these opponents, seven times opponents, boom, opposing, 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 we're seeing in the scriptures a caricature, a picture of this is what sinful hearts do. So this morning, let's look at, before we get into the truths of what Jesus says... Let's look at two warnings that we get from the confrontation itself. Warning number one, beware of godless religion. Beware of godless religion. The Sadducees were religious, but somewhere along the way, their religion became more about them than about God. Perhaps if they were to have read the fullness of their Bibles... They would have seen this pitfall in the Old Testament Israel over and over again. The Sadducees rejected the prophecy of Isaiah as authoritative, authoritative, but maybe they should have read it. Listen to Isaiah's words in the very first chapter to Israel. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner. The donkey, its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. If you look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, hear the word of the Lord to them. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough 
I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, of the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who's required this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations. I can't endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands... I will hide my face from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. What's happening in Isaiah 1? God had commanded sacrifices. He had commanded feasts of remembrance. He commanded the holy assembly. He commanded all these things for Israel to do. But in Isaiah, God says, I hate those things, and they're a burden to me. Why? Because you're doing godly things, but God has nothing to do with it. You're doing things that look righteous, but the aim and motivation of this worship is not the one true God. What a frightening thing. Perhaps I've stated this in a sermon before, but to me, one of the scariest verses in the New Testament is actually in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, where Timothy lists out the types of sins that will be common in the last days. He lists out all kinds of things, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 3 verse 2 he says people will be lovers of self lovers of money proud arrogant abusive disobedient to their parents ungrateful unholy heartless unappeasable slanderous without self-control brutal not loving good treacherous reckless swollen with conceit lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God but here's the one that scares me the most having the appearance of godliness but denying its power avoid such people Church, there is a way to appear godly while not knowing God. There's a way to do godly things without God as the motivation. There's a way to use God as simply a means to another end that you actually love more than God. These Sadducees are speaking face-to-face with God in the flesh. They're dressed in godly ways. They speak in godly ways. They speak about godly things. And they don't know God when he stands in front of them. Let me ask you, as I had to ask myself this week, do you know the power of God? Now, I don't mean, do you, do you know that a God exists? I mean, that's a pretty obvious reality. I think any thinking person should come to the terms that there's some sort of God that exists. That's not what I'm asking, and that's not what God desires. Do you know God? The sweetness of forgiveness that he offers, the joy of his presence, the joy of serving his purposes above your own, or are you just kind of a moral person who goes to church for reasons other than knowing God and hearing his word. The Sadducees would have been faithful attenders, but they didn't know God. And one of the very obvious signs that they did not know God, according to Jesus, was also that they did not know the scriptures. Now that's a kind of crazy accusation for the Sadducees because the Sadducees spent hours every day studying the scriptures. They they knew what the scriptures said. The problem, however, was that their reading was selective. They only believed and accepted some of the scriptures while rejecting massive portions of God's inspired word. And Jesus says this is why 
you're wrong. This is why you don't get it. And this serves as yet another warning to us. Warning number two, beware of selective reading. Beware of selective reading. There is a way to read God's word looking for the parts that you like. There is a way to read God's word and use God's word for the things that you want it to do. That is no way to read God's word. Half-truths are no truths at all. Half-truths lead to a whole hell. If we accept some of God's word but reject and ignore God's word at other places, we've not made God our Lord. We have made ourselves Lord over his words, and we've just hijacked some of his words that we like. We've made ourselves the authority and have simply found some words to be useful to us, so we'll use those. But God's word's not something that you grab on and use to do something that you already wanted to do. God's words are an authority that we submit ourselves under. That, that God might accomplish his purposes through us, no matter how we feel about those words and purposes. 2 Timothy 3.16, all of Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction, for training in righteousness. When God speaks, it's important. Maybe you're here this morning, and it's not just that you outright and intentionally reject whole books of the Bible like the Sadducees did, though perhaps you haven't read them. It's just particular doctrines that you don't like that have difficult implications for your life. Maybe you're here this morning, it's not even that you reject anything in God's word outright, but you just practically do by choosing to stay ignorant of the whole counsel of God's word. There's a false dichotomy which wants to paint biblical study and deep meditation as a cold, spiritless side of Christianity. Oh, I don't want to get into all that kind of stuff. That's for the ivory tower people who do the study and they read books and they, 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 they fiddle over. We had one church member that we went and did disaster relief and he was like, oh, be careful. You have preacher hands. You just caress scriptures all day, every day, you know. And there's a mentality, though. And while that was a joke, it, it, it came from, a, from an actual worldview, which says there's the real ministry of the work that puts calluses in my hands, and then there's the kind of caressing pages that pastors do. Be careful. Be careful. Do not be deceived by the many schemes of the devil. God is an unfathomable being, and he has spoken. And the way in which he's decided to speak has been through words on a page. Language, sentences, and phrases we meditate on and, and try to know this God who is outside of time. <laughs> The Spirit of God never works separate from the Word of God being understood and responded to in some way. Spirit and Word go together. If you ever experience Spirit that's totally separate from Word, then you need to question what Spirit it is you are experiencing. Beware of selective reading. Beware of caring about and cherishing only God's words that can fit on coffee cups and bumper stickers. Beware of nibbling on baby food when God's provided you a feast. In the written words of the Lord, I've, I've heard a pastor once say, why do we teach our children to read? Because there's a book that God has given us. Primarily because there's a book by which we can know God. He didn't inspire a movie. 
inspired words on a page. Hebrews 5, verse 12 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. The basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food for everyone who lives on milk. What's it, what's it, what is an immature Christian? Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. What's the definition of maturity? It is to be skilled in the things which God has said and to know what is false and what is true. Why couldn't the Sadducees see? Why were they so wrong? Godless religion and selective reading. So now we know why they're wrong, but let's look at how they're wrong according to Jesus. The Sadducees ask, who's going to be married to who after the resurrection of God's people if this resurrection thing is true? Jesus' answer. Now look at verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Such a strange sentence, um, and he moves on rather quickly. I mean, Jesus teaches in this moment that when all of history is brought to its final conclusion, and his people are resurrected to live forever, the institution of marriage will no longer exist. Jesus doesn't elaborate on this much. He actually moves quickly to the crux of the issue, which is their disbelief in the resurrection. The question was never really about marriage at all. But we should pause here briefly and ask, what does this mean? I mean, human marriages entered into on earth will not be a part of eternal life. It's a sentence that Jesus speaks here. Now, to the singles in the room, you're thinking, well, praise the Lord. Right? I won't be the third wheel any longer. I, I won't have to deal with being the only single person in the room. We'll all be where I'm at. How do you like it now? Right? To the marrieds in the room, you're either horrified at the thought of no longer being married to your spouse or you're relieved, which if you're relieved, um, then maybe that's a whole other sermon, right? Maybe this verse functions for you like a glorious promise of the gospel, <laughs> But before continuing with the argument of the text, the question I would want to ask Jesus is why? I mean, if I was one of the disciples there that day, I mean, I probably would have pulled Jesus aside later and say, why, why would marriage be a part of life now, but not be a part of life at the end of all things? Why would it not be a part of life in heaven? Well, we can't pull Jesus aside and ask him that question, but we can look at the rest of inspired scripture for an answer to this question, which brings us to truth number one. We look at two warnings, we'll look at two truths. Truth number one, marriage is fulfilled in Christ's return for his church. Now, I pray that these next couple minutes stir you to worship if you are a Christian here. Marriage is a beautiful gift in this world. It's precious in the sight of God. It's one of the greatest responsibilities for those who are married to pour out their lives for their marriages to the end of their lives here on earth. But marriage, as beautiful as, as it is, and as difficult as it is, points beyond itself. 
Much like the physical temple in Jerusalem in all of its glory and splendor, it was an institution that pointed beyond itself to something more beautiful than any human being could ever imagine. Though all, though all of my love and affection, my oneness with my wife is precious to me, it's precious to God, it is but a shadow of the deep love, affection, and spiritual oneness to be experienced between God and every person whom he saved for himself. The relationship I have with my wife in the healthiest and happiest of moments is but a glimpse of a deeper relationship to come with more joy than I can imagine. The story of the Bible is a story of redeeming sacrificial love that a bridegroom has for his bride. But the bridegroom is Jesus and the bride is his church. Though the bride was unfaithful to him, adulterous and idolatrous, the bridegroom is willing to give his blood for his precious bride. The bridegroom promises to purchase her for himself and looks forward to the day where the marriage will be Consummated. And if these Sadducees would have read their Bibles, they would have seen that marriage had a deeper, more beautiful union that it was pointing to. If they hadn't rejected Hosea chapter 2, verse 16, maybe they would have got this. Where, where God says, in that day, declares the Lord, you'll call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. I will remove the names of the bells from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I'll make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. I'll abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. I'll make you lay down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Why are you asking this foolish question? Because you don't know God and you don't know your Bibles. Marriage points to something that Jesus could have said in that moment, I'm going to accomplish. Paul's going to come out with a great book later to the Ephesians. You should read that when it gets published, Jesus could have said. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Revelation is described as one big marriage ceremony where we rejoice and feast revelation 19 verse 7 rejoice and exult give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready jonathan edwards summarizes all this with these words he says christ obtaining his spouse is the great end of all the great things that have been done from the beginning of the world it was that the Son of God might obtain his chosen spouse that the world was created and that he came to the world and when this end shall be fully obtained, the world will come to an end. Marriage is fulfilled in Christ's return for his church and this is our glorious present as a church. The church is not just a collection of doctrines and some people to come hear some things. The church is beautiful in the eyes of God. They missed the point of marriage, and they missed the hope of eternal life. 
Jesus now turns to the crux of the issue of their unbelief in the resurrection in verse 26, and he quotes from Exodus 3, actually a book that they would have known very well. So he chooses to quote a book that they agree is authoritative. He's like, all right, if we're going to do this thing, we'll play on your playing field and I'll still beat you. Exodus chapter 3, he goes to. So look at Mark chapter 12, verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, and notice the question, have you not read? (laughs) Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I'm the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not a God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. They had read this passage over and over again in the book of Exodus, where God speaks of himself and says, this is who I am. But they did not read with eyes to see. They did not read with intent to hear from God. They didn't read with intent to know God. And they rejected things that were very plain in the scriptures. So here's Jesus' argument. He quotes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. I'll read that again. I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. How is God defining himself to Moses here in this moment? He's defining himself by a relationship to people who have physically died. People who were given great promises from God and never saw them before they died in this world. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, given incredible promises of God, never saw the fulfillment of those promises. And then hundreds of years later, God is asked, who are you? And he says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am I'm presently the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the biggest moment of God's self-revelation where Moses says, who are you? He defines himself by association with three dead guys who never saw the promises fulfilled. Does that make sense? Or are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alive and well in the presence of God? experiencing the fulfillment of promises and waiting for the end of them. Jesus' argument's clear in verse 27, isn't it? He's not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Our last truth, truth number two, God is the God of the living. Even the first five books of the Bible teach this, Death is not the end of the story. Death is not the end of God's promises. It's not the end of God's people. It wasn't the end for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even hundreds of years later, God says, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are doing just fine. This is a beautiful argument, and the Sadducees have even read this text, but they've missed the beauty of it. If there's no future resurrection... If there's no eternal life, if there's, if there's no relationship with the eternal God, then relationship now means very little for a very short time. And Jesus says, if you don't have the hope of life after this world, you are very wrong. You are quite wrong in the words of Jesus. And I don't think these Sadducees recognize just how wrong they were. They were not just talking about future resurrection with some man named Jesus. They were talking to the resurrection that was promised. (laughs) 
They're speaking with the one who made resurrection possible. They were speaking to the one who would fulfill the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're speaking to the one who would rise from the dead as the first fruits and down payment to everyone who would rise from the dead after him who put faith in him. Jesus' words to a lamenting woman over Lazarus were, don't worry, he will rise again. And she says in John chapter 11, verse 24, Martha says, says to Jesus, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So she wasn't a Sadducee. Jesus says, well, yeah, in the last day. But here's this, here's this, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He's the answer to the curse of death, the fulfillment of very old promises. He took the curse of death on himself that he might be the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Blessing will come to all the families of the earth through you. He died for you, though you should die because of your sins against God. He died for you and didn't stay dead. And he is the substitute for you in such a way that if you trust for him, you don't have to die forever, but you can live again just as he lived again on the third day. This is the argument of the Bible. This is the good news of Christianity. If you don't get this, you don't get Christ. Allow me, let's just, let me just stop preaching for a minute, and let me just let Paul preach for us to, to close us out here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved. Hold fast to the word I preached to you, Unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scripture. Look at verse 14. What if it just ended there? Christ died for your sins. And he didn't have that next little part about resurrection. Look at 1 Corinthians verse 15, verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching's in vain and your faith is in vain. We are found even mis misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it's true that the dead aren't raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man, a one man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in the order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. Look at verse 50. If you're discouraged this morning, with life, if you're hurting, if your body's hurting, your loved ones are hurting, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable, but behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. 
For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where, where, is your, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. How do we respond this morning to this? Two responses. Two responses to this passage that we've studied this morning. Number one, repent of godless religion and selective reading. Ask God this morning to search your heart for Sadducee-like tendencies. Ask him to help you put God at the center of your religious activity. Ask him to help you hunger for God's word, to understand it. Seek out a community of people who will help you do it. And number two, response number two, rejoice in God's promise of resurrection and reconciliation. Sometimes... Sometimes I feel like Christianity is so consumeristic that you come to a sermon looking for the step-by-step process just to make your life better. But sometimes the best way to respond to a sermon, the healthiest way to respond to a sermon is to rejoice over the things that God has reminded you are true. Sometimes you just need to respond to a sermon with joy and celebrate the promises that are true this week that were true last week, but somewhere between the Sundays you forgot them. So I encourage you this morning to just respond with rejoicing. No matter what's going on in your life this week, you have the promise from a resurrected Jesus that one day you will know God face to face. One day, as the song says, God will gather us together in his arms of endless grace as his bride forever, we will see his face. So let's respond to his word. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the words of life. Help us to believe them. Help us to press in deeper into them. To know them. To hold them as precious. To share with them to those who do not have them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.